Welcome to another powerful message from One Life OK. We really hope you enjoy it. I've been on a really fun journey um, of restoring and renewing my mind. And let me tell you, it is awesome. It is awesome to be solid in your mind. You know, when I was uh, probably in kindergarten, I got selected for gifted and talented. Uh, don't get triggered if you didn't. It doesn't. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. Um, but that was kind of my first introduction in to my mind and what my mind could do outside of God. Um, and it's pretty amazing what our minds can do on our own. Um, I think when I, by the time I was in the third grade, my parents couldn't help me with homework anymore. Um, when I was probably like 14, 15, right when I entered high school, I had actually already completed all my math and science in, for high school. So I started college. So ninth grade year, I'm taking college biology, college chemistry, calculus, and statistics for fun. <laughs> so, um, but think about that. At 15, I kind of had reached um, this max in my intellectualism. So then going into college, I was like, well, I'm kind of exhausted here. So let's try the creative side. And so I, I went to school for graphic design, got my degree in graphic design. But wouldn't you know, that kind of ran out too. And so I think that today I am just praying. Our mind is part of our soul. Uh, it's our mind, will, and emotions. And so I'm just praying today that um, you guys get a deposit of the renewing of your mind, that it's more than you think. Um, we can do really, really awesome things without him. But with him, there's just this untappedness that he is looking for. So let's everybody put our hands on our minds, on our brains today. And so let's just say, Holy Spirit, I give over to you today my mind, the way that I think, the way that I view things. I hand it over to you today in exchange for your mind. Yeah, so Holy Spirit, I just thank you that even today you are expanding people's brains where they felt really limited in their mind, limited in their capabilities. And so I just thank you that that is your goodness for us to tap into you and tap into your unending creation. Um, you know, he doesn't have a mind. He just is. And he's the guy who created everything. And so I just bless that truth over us today in Jesus' name. So this month we've been on what? What's soul management? So that means our souls are coming up a lot, and um, which again, mind, will, and emotions—these things that um, come up in us—it is the way that the spirit gets expressed through us is through our soul, and so it's really important that our soul is clear for our spirit. And so that's what we've been talking about all week and so I feel like, or all month. And so I feel like as we wrap up this month that he wanted to kind of help us know what the purpose of this month was for leading into what we're actually meant to do, you know, because we're not meant to constantly battle in our souls, battle in our mind, battle in whether or not we want to do something, battle in how we feel that we're actually meant to break free of that, submit that to a spirit 
and allow his spirit to do what he wants to do. So, but you can put the first slide up. What we're talking about today is soul battles versus spirit battles. Um, there is a difference between living in the turmoil of your soul and true adversity from the enemy because you're obeying God. And so today he is wanting to help us see the difference between that. Um, Tisa actually said a few weeks back that most of our warfare comes from immaturity and suggestions of the enemy. It's not even true spiritual warfare. And so I felt like today that he wants to help us break out of even things that we're thinking of spiritual warfare. But he's saying, oh, no, no, you haven't even begun. One time I had seen a picture of when I'm in my soul. I'm literally headlocking my soul, and I'm like, just do it, just do it, do what you know you need to do, <laughs> and it never works, it does not work, and so he is wanting to help us today um, get out of that and be equipped, and so um, we can go ahead and go to the next slide, B. We're going to do a little breakdown of the difference between the two, and go ahead and put that first one up. Oh, it's the whole thing. Okay. Um, we are not equipped to battle on our souls. There is no equipment. There is no tools to continue to battle on our soul, to try to make our soul. There's no empowerment there. We are, however, pre-equipped to fight in spiritual warfare. Um, it's what we got when we accepted Jesus. We got this whole package of the armor of God, and so we are equipped to that. So we're going to break down what it looks like to battle on our soul, and what it looks like um, to battle with our spirit. So we're going to start in Romans 7. We're going to be super heavy in the Word today because part of reading the Word is part of what renews our mind, is we actually get the opportunity to attach to His truth. So this is really, this is really interesting to me. We'll, we'll start from the, we're going to do this whole chapter, so... He says, I'm in the Passion Translation, starting at the beginning. I write to you, dear brothers and sisters, who are familiar with the law. Don't you know that when a person dies, it ends his obligation to the law? For example, a married couple is bound by the law to remain together until separated by death. But when one spouse dies, the other is released from the law of marriage. So then if a wife is joined to another man while still married, she commits adultery. But if her husband dies, she is obviously free from the marriage contract and may marry another man without being charged with adultery. So he's kind of just using marriage as an example of our relationship with the law versus our relationship with love. Um, that, and we're going to get into it, but that the law was never meant, was never actually Papa's intention, but he did use it um, to lead us to him and to, and to show us what. Um, that it wasn't going to be enough because it, it attaches to our soul. So, uh, we'll start with four. It says, so my dear brothers and sisters, the same principle applies to your relationship with God. For you died to your first husband, the law, by being co-crucified with the body of the Messiah. So you are now free to marry another, the one who was raised from the dead, so that you may now bear spiritual fruit for God. That is some good news there. When we were merely living naturalized lives, the law, through defining sin, actually awakened 
sinful desires within us, which resulted in bearing the fruit of death. This is really interesting to me that he points this out because what he's saying is when we were living in our natural self, in our soul, in our flesh, our physical man, um, that the law actually opened our eyes to see what sin was. So there was a time that before we couldn't see the difference between sin and not sin, sin and righteousness. Um, but the law actually opened our eyes to that capability to see um, what was of him and what wasn't of him. Six, but now we have been fully released from the power of the law. We are dead to what once controlled us, and our lives are no longer motivated by the obsolete way of following the written code so that we now we may serve God by living in the freshness of a new life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, that footnote there says, or by new Holy Spirit empowered life. So right there, you can see the difference of living in your soul versus living empowered by a spirit. There's two different things there. Um, and so going back to in the wilderness was when God first brought his people out, right? Why did he bring them out? Simply so he could be with them. There wasn't any other reason so he could do stuff for that. They could do stuff for him or any other thing simply so he could be with them. Um, but they got afraid. And so instead of meeting with God and allowing God to write on their hearts, they said, give us some rules that we can follow. And right there is an example of what we like in our souls. We like some rules that we can follow. It actually soothes us to have this external thing to live by as opposed to relationship. But God wasn't messed up about it. Again, he was like, okay, okay, I can use this. Um, that, And really what it is is that the law helps us see that just the awareness of our state is not enough. So just that is crazy to me. Just knowing right and wrong isn't enough to stop you from doing wrong. We are not equipped to battle in our souls. We are not equipped to try to will ourselves into doing what's right. It will take the power of the Holy Spirit. So God created the law as a starting point for his standard. It is his standard. It lines up with his character. It lines up with who he is when you go and read the Ten Commandments. Um, but we know that they all boil down to love God and love people. So again, it's like when you pare it down, it's always going to come back to a relationship. But the law does help us understand how destructive sin is to our design. That moment that we're awaking, awakened, we do experience a battle in our souls um, because truth just entered into our mind, will, and emotions. Truth just entered into our understanding, into how we feel, and it now is living in the same place that sin probably resides and so that's where that double-mindedness lives. Um, I heard this quote recently. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So God um, does not work outside of himself. He's always going to be constant and consistent to who he is. And so even when he gave the law, um, it wasn't outside of his nature. So we've got to understand that the whole time in the Old Testament, He's actually revealing his nature, and it wasn't until, obviously, we see Jesus in the flesh that then we got to experience what he was like because Jesus only did what, what he saw the Father doing. 
So let's go through this next part on verse 7. So what shall we say about all this? Am I suggesting that the law is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that gave us the clear definition of sin. There he says it right there. For example, when the law says, do not covet, it became the catalyst to see how wrong it was for me to crave what belongs to somebody else. That is a really good God to help us first. It's the first step to be able to see, again, what hurts his heart and what brings him joy, what draws us closer to him. Um, And so we've got to realize that that although the law isn't the end-all, be-all, it is... um, again, indicative to his nature. So it was through God's commandment that sin was awakened in me and built its base of operation within me to stir up every kind of wrong desire. Oh, dang. (laughs) For in the absence of of the law, sin hides dormant. That is, again, I think why he is so good. We did need to know what his standard was. Otherwise, sin can hide underneath the surface and go undetected, still causing destruction, um, but we are unknown to it. So what that tells me, too, is that when we stay in our souls, it will eventually lead to sin. And so that is why we aren't equipped to battle in our souls constantly, because it actually causes separation from God, because we're doing it on our own. So let's go into... Let's see. Where did I? Oh, where I am. There I am. Okay. I want nine, right? Is that where I am? I once lived without a clear understanding of the law, but when I heard God's commandments, sin sprang to life and brought with it a death sentence. The commandment that was intended to bring life brought me death instead. Sin, by means of the commandment, built a base of operation within me to overpower me and put me to death. So then, we have to conclude that the problem is not with the law itself, for the law is holy and its commandments are correct and for our good. So, did something meant to be good become death to me? This is where he addresses it. Certainly not. It was not the law, but sin unmasked that produced my spiritual death. The sacred commandment merely uncovered the evil of sin so it could be seen for what it is. Again, that is a really good dad to help us to see what is of him and what is not. Think about how mean that would be if we didn't know. It's just not who he is. And so um, this, this was a part of his plan. So we know that the law is divinely inspired and comes from the spiritual realm. That's really interesting right? Because we're talking about soul battles versus spiritual battles. And so the law actually has the ability to lead us to the spiritual realm because it came from the spiritual realm. But where does it get stuck? If it gets stuck in our souls, if it gets stuck in our mind, our understanding, our ability to do it on our own or how we feel that day, it will get distorted. Um. The law is divinely inspired and comes from the spiritual realm. But I am a human being made of flesh and trafficked as a slave under sin's authority. So we know that sin is simply just a separator um, from God. But um, what he's been talking to me more recently is that um, in the word, it actually says that anything that's done without faith 
is considered sin. And so I want you to adopt that new definition today, that sin is simply anything done without faith. The opposite you could say is that sin is anything done in doubt. Um, that actually comes from Romans 14, 23. But he who is uncertain about eating a particular thing, he was talking about food, is condemned if he eats because he is not acting from faith. Whatever is not done from faith is sin. Whatever is, is done with doubt is sinful. Um, in the voice it says, but a man who decides for himself what to eat is condemned because he is not living by his faith. Did you catch that? He decides for himself. That's that independent process that he just decided, oh, I think that this is good. No faith is required to do that. Zero faith. That's considered sin in God's eyes, which is just a, it's what separates us from him. Any action not consistent with faith is sin. And so for me, that was an amazing definition change because it re-altered even my reason for not sinning. It wasn't so that I wouldn't do bad, but it was because I wasn't accessing what he said I could have through faith. I'm going to have some water breaks. So the good news is, though, who took care of that problem? Jesus. So another way to view it then, since sin is living without faith, is that Jesus took care of a lack of faith problem. Jesus actually took care of the doubt problem. When we accept him into our hearts, we have within us the ability to believe. So it totally dismantles this lie that I don't know how, because both the Holy Spirit and Jesus are living inside you, and they have enough belief. So we just got to partner with him. This is what it looks like to live like you've never sinned. So again, let's take it within the context of faith. What would it look like if you didn't live life with, with doubt? If you never lived a single day in unbelief? And when you did, the very next second, you got right back on the belief train. There is freedom there to, to stay consistent in your belief. Even when you have a moment, there is freedom. to. That's what it looks like to live like you've never sinned before. It's not simply, and this is why we're not empowered in our souls. It's not going to be enough oomph. We don't have enough willpower to make ourselves do good. It's not a good motivator. But our spirit actually partnering with faith is an amazing motivator to see what he will do. Um, so let's, this is where Paul is so funny to me. Um, we're at 15. This, this whole next part um, through the end of the chapter is such a good picture of what it looks like to live in your soul. He says, very first thing, I'm a mystery to myself. Oh, dang. <laughs> when we're living in our souls, we have no ability to know who we are. We cannot see clearly who we are without him. A mystery to myself where I want to do what is right but end up doing what my moral instincts condemned. So there we see that the moment we get introduced to the law, we know his standard, we know right from wrong, um, but here's this battle, here, this battle of our souls to do what we know he said to do. And if my behavior is not in line with my desire, my conscience still confirms the essence of the law. Now, a lot of people get frustrated um, in this process, but to me, again, when I'm battling in my soul, it's actually an indicator that truth already resides. 
Because if the lie had a home by itself, there would not be any sort of dissonance. But because truth is already inside of you, the moment you accept Jesus, truth lives inside of you. And so when that lie comes, it is going to cause an intrusion and you will feel it, especially up here. To me, so much happens up here um, that we could just get free of. And so that is why um, we still have that conscious, right? Our conscious says, oh, wait, I know this isn't right. So then we begin to experience that term turmoil. And now I realize that it is no longer my true self doing it, but the unwelcome intruder of sin in my humanity. So again, the, the, the longer we continue in our soul, it will eventually lead to sin, which is just simply lack of faith, which separates us from God. Okay, 18. For I know that nothing good lives within the flesh of my fallen humanity. He knows it. That's crazy. He knows it. The longings to do what is right are within me, but willpower is not enough to accomplish it. I'm going to read that footnote right there. But I don't know how to do it. So there we see willpower is not enough. Willpower does not teach us how to do what he says we must do. It is only by his spirit. Okay, 19. My lofty desires to do what is good are dashed when I do the things I want to avoid. Oh, dang it. Isn't, isn't that how our soul is, though? It's like, wee, 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 wee. I, I do good. I do good. I make, I make a mess. Psh, dashed. Dashed when I do things that I'm trying not to do. Um, so if my behavior contradicts my desires to do goods, I must conclude that it's not my true identity doing it, but the unwelcomed intruder of sin hindering me from being who I really am. So right here, we're seeing that battle in the soul. We're seeing that because we do an independent process, we know it's not who we're meant to be, but we aren't able to actually achieve who we know, even though it's a mystery to us, we still know it's not us. It's not who we're truly meant to be. 21. Through my experience of this principle, I discover that even when I want to do good, evil is ready to sabotage me. Truly deep within my true identity, I love to do what pleases God. But I discern another power operating in my humanity, waging a war against the moral, moral principles of my conscience and bringing me into captivity as a prisoner to the law of sin. This unwelcome intruder in my humanity. That word conscious actually means warring against the law of my mind. So again, here we see inside of our mind, two things are going on at play. And I do want to say that something can start as spiritual warfare. You know, we do have a real enemy. So he is going to always be suggesting things to us that are distortion of truth. Um, but if we're not careful, the moment we accept his lie, he actually gets to take a step back and we begin to do a battle that we're not equipped for. And that's that soul battle. And so I want to help us see that where we cross over from actual spiritual warfare, because it is going on. That is the real battle. 
into where he gets to say, well, I don't even have to mess with you. It's what Jesus said last time. I don't even have to mess with you. I can actually send, you know, just one of my people to just when, when you, the, for like a second that you get back in, they'll say it again and then you'll be out for another day, week, month. That's all battling in your soul. What an agonizing situation I am in. That's what it feels like when you battle on your soul. So who has the power to rescue this miserable man from the unwelcome intruder of sin and death? I give all my thanks to God for his mighty power has finally provided a way out through our Lord Jesus, the anointed one. So get this, listen to this. So if left to myself, the flesh is aligned with the law of sin. When I'm by myself, when I'm battling in my soul, I will. it will lead to lack of faith because I'm doing it on my own, which will separate me from God. And then I'll wonder why I feel disconnected. Then I'll wonder why I'm not hearing his voice. It's because he's not a part of that equation. But, there's a good but there. But now my renewed mind is fixed on and submitted to God's righteous principles. So again, it's only possible through connecting to our faith that our spirit man already possesses, um, which is really cool. I love how this ends because if you go into Romans 8, it starts out living by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here in Romans 7, you see this whole battle in our souls. And think about how long or short that process can take by simply uh, acknowledging I am not doing what I know that I want to do. Right in that moment is the seed of choice to say, will I continue to do this in the way that I have been doing it, which is the soul battle, or will I live empowered by the Holy Spirit? So going to Romans 8, 1 through 4, it says, So now the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who are joined in life union with Jesus, the Anointed One. That's some great news there. Condemnation, listen, condemnation only has a home in you when you're battling in your soul. Condemnation cannot touch the spirit man that lives inside of you. It's not up there, but it's another good indication. For the law of the spirit of life flowing through the anointing of Jesus has liberated us from the law of sin and death. For God achieved what the law was unable to accomplish because the law was limited Listen, the law wasn't limited in itself. The law was limited by the weakness of human nature. So this again goes to show that our souls paired with the law cannot do it. They cannot do it. We cannot do what he says. Yet, God sent his son in human form to identify with our human weakness. Clothed with humanity, God's son gave his body to be the sin offering so that God could once and for all condemn the guilt and power of sin. So right there, I want to help us because it's already been done. Jesus already said this has been taken care of. So when sin comes, which is lack of faith, let me help you, it actually has no power. Or Jesus isn't as powerful as he said he was. That's the difference. 
But because Jesus is as powerful, he says he was, sin has no power. So where does the power come from? All in here. It's all in here, what you believe about yourself. So now, every righteous requirement of the law can be fulfilled through the anointed one living his life in us. And we are free to live. Here we go. This is good. We are free to live not according to our flesh. Very. Far. We are not equipped to live in our flesh. We are not equipped to live by our lowest level of living. We're not equipped. It will do nothing good for us. We are, though, free to live by the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit. I love this footnote. It says, what joyous truths are found in Romans 8? All that God requires of us has been satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The life of Jesus in us is enough to satisfy God. The power of our new life is not the works of our weak humanity. The power of our new life is not the works of our weak humanity, but by the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit released in us. That is the promise. So when you stop battling in your soul and you relinquish your soul to your spirit man, to the Holy Spirit, that Romans 8 is what happens. So we're going to go through some of these indicators of soul battles versus spiritual battles. So like that first one, we're not equipped to win battling with our soul. Psalm 33, 16 says, even if a king had the best equipped army, it would never be enough to save him. Even if the best warrior went to battle, he could not be saved simply by his strength alone. Human strength and the weapons of man are false hopes for victory. They may seem mighty, but they will always disappoint. They are not enough to do this battle. Oh, look at this. This is good. James 4.1. What is the cause of your conflicts and quarrels with each other? Doesn't the battle begin inside of you as you fight to have your own way and feel your own desires? That is what it looks like to battle in your soul. You actually are battling within your own self, but it does have to come out because it doesn't work. And so anybody you're in relationship with experiences the battle that you're having within yourself, within your soul. When you're in a soul battle, people are either used by you or against you. It's a really big way to tell if you're battling in your soul is that um, there's a spirit of division. And so, again, I want to help us see there's actual spiritual warfare going on. But when we're in our souls trying to battle, we cannot do it. And so um, when we're battling in our soul, it's us against the world, right? Or we simply use people to get what we want. Really big indicators. We're not equipped to fight this fight against ourselves or other people. Because it's outside our design. So anything we do there, we won't win. We are, however, equipped to win a spiritual battle. Um, This is where in Ephesians 6, he talks about the armor of God. Uh, Now, my beloved ones, I have saved these most important truths for last. Be supernaturally infused with the strength through your life union with the Lord Jesus. Stand victorious with the force of his explosive power flowing in and through you. Put on God's complete set of armor provided for us so that you will be protected as you fight against the evil strategies of the accuser. Here he identifies it's that verse. Your hand-to-hand combat is not with human beings. 
That is not the battle that we're fighting. But with the highest principalities and authorities operating in rebellion under the heavenly realms. Right there, I think sometimes we don't realize how awesome we are. And right there, God's saying, hey, you're not meant to fight with people. That is some low-level fighting. You're actually meant to fight things you can't even see. You're actually meant to fight principalities, which actually means rulers of the demonic. That's how powerful we actually are. They are a powerful class of demon gods and evil spirits that hold this dark world in bondage. Because of this, you must wear the armor that God provides. The armor that God provides. The armor that God provides. We've got some other armor that we're going to get to. But this is the armor that God provides that actually equips us. So you're protected as you confront the slanderer. For you are destined for all things and will rise victorious. And so, you know, it's not a question of if the enemy's going to lie. He's going to lie. It's the only thing he can do. He can't, can't do anything else. Lie. Steal, kill, and destroy, right? So let's get into some of these. So very first, uh, after equ not equipped and pre-equipped, we've got double-mindedness. James 1, 6 says, we cannot think one thing. Oh, no, this is a quote. This is not the Bible. This is A.W. Tozer. We cannot think one thing and will another. The single act of willing starts a chain reaction that affects our entire thinking process. Renewing the mind is not a matter of learning new ideas, but of willing to believe what we already know. What we already know. Okay, right here. This is how you renew your mind. You don't need more stuff. You don't need more knowledge. You need to access the knowledge that's in here because Jesus lives in you. Guaranteed 100%. I was going to say $100. 100%. It's not offering time. 100%. That Holy Spirit has already spoken something to you. 100%. That He always goes first. And so because of that, the way that we renew our mind, we just believe what he says. So when something comes up and we're challenged, we're challenged in our faith, that's a moment to not step out in sin. It's a moment to not step out in doubt. It's a moment to, to actually partner with his spirit, what his spirit is doing. And that's how your mind gets changed. Let me help you. God's never going to do any of the adjusting. He would be working outside of his nature if he was adjusting. He is all things good, all things perfect. He doesn't just love, he is love. So we will be the ones who will do the adjusting. Okay, now getting into the Bible. James 1. Okay, I had to pull up so many versions of this. This is James 1, 6 through 8. And don't feel like you have to go to all of these because, like I said, I have a lot. But this is in the AMP, Amplified. But he must ask for wisdom and faith without doubting God's willingness to help. For the one who doubts is like a billowing surge of the sea that is blown about and tossed by the wind. There's that soul battle. For such a person ought not to think or expect that he will receive anything at all from the Lord being a double-minded man, which means unstable and restless in all his ways. 
and everything he thinks, feels, and decides. Right there is your soul. Thinks, your mind, feels, emotions, decides, your will. Here it is in the voice. The key is that your request be anchored by your single-minded commitment to God. Those who are deep, those who depend only on their own judgment. Here we are again. His own way, your own judgment, are like those lost on the seas, carried away by any wave or picked up by any wind. Those adrift on their own wisdom shouldn't assume the Lord will rescue them or bring them anything. Oh, dang. God's like, I can't help you with that process because that's outside of the way that I work. The splinter of your divided loyalty shatters your compass and leaves you dizzy and confused. Man, that goes back to I'm a mystery to myself. We don't know which way is up and which way is down when we're battling in our soul. It, because there's that, because there's two, two things in operation living in our mind, that double-mindedness. Divided loyalty shatters your compass, leaves you dizzy and confused. Okay, here it is from The Passion. Just make sure you ask empowered by confident faith without doubting that you, are, you will receive. For the ambivalent person believes one minute and doubts the next. So here we see that in and out of faith. In faith, in doubt, separated from God. In, out, in, out, in, out. Can you see how that would not develop a history of consistency or of good strongholds in your mind of the truth of who God says you are and who he is? That process. Being undecided makes you become like the rough seas driven and tossed by the wind. You're up one minute and tossed down the next. There's that soul up, down, up, down when you're half-hearted. So there's another good de definition of when we live in doubt or we live outside of faith, our whole heart is not there. We've got a partial heart going on. When you're half-hearted and unwavering, it leaves you unstable. Can you really expect to receive anything from the Lord when you're in that condition? So when we're battling in our souls, it is really hard to receive from God. He is waiting to pour out His truth and His goodness and His love on us. But when that lies has taken root in our mind, it is really hard to receive from Him. We've actually got to cast that out first. So obviously, spirit battle... When we're in spiritual warfare, we actually are able to have a sound mind, which is Christ's mind, um, which happens through mind renewal. Second um, Timothy 1.7, in the amp, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity or cowardice or fear. So again, let's think about what we're talking about, what sin is. Sin is lack of faith. Sin is doubting what God said. Um, let's translate this over. He did not. That's what timidity or cowardice or fear. The spirit of fear is the spirit of doubt. It's all under the same thing. That's why there's only two options, God or the enemy. He did not give us the enemy's spirit. He gave us his spirit. But he has given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound judgment and personal discipline. This is where, uh, this is crazy. In his Holy Spirit is discipline. It, that self-discipline that you keep trying to headlock yourself into, <laughs> it's only by his Spirit. 
You cannot make yourself do it, I'm telling you. These, uh, AMP says that personal discipline is abilities that result in a calm, well-balanced mind and self-control. Doesn't that sound so nice? Don't we want that? Don't we just want, man, we're just looking for peace, right? We're looking for peace in our minds. We're looking for all of that chaos to stop. The only way that it can stop is with the Holy Spirit. From the beginning, the Holy Spirit hovered over chaos and put into order. And so he's got to come and be the one who orders your chaos in the way that you think. Romans 12. Romans, All of Romans is amazing. That's where a lot of this is from. Um, it will help you fight the right war and get over your soul. So if you're struggling in this area with what we've been, been talking about in the focus, Romans will light you up. Romans 12, 2. Stop imitating the ideas and opinions of the culture around you, but be inwardly transformed by the Holy Spirit. How? Through a total reformation of how you think. So it's the Holy Spirit transforming our inside that actually that will change how we think. This will empower you to discern God's will as you live a beautiful life, satisfying and perfect in His eyes. And so I just want to help us that our minds are going to go through this process. Jesus said this on Wednesday too. Our minds are continually being renewed. They're going to be renewed until we're in eternity. We're on the other side of eternity. Right now we're within the constraints of time in our hundred plus or minus years of life. That whole time our mind's getting renewed. It's not an indicator that something's wrong with you. Think about it. God himself is trying to change your mind like his. This is the guy who made everything. It is going to take your entire life and more for you to learn. It's just simply to learn what he's like. That's what renewing your mind is, to learn what he's like. And so we, we can't ever be satisfied with putting a cap on that process. The moment we put a cap on is the moment distortion happens because we say, okay, God, you can do this. And he has no limits on what he can do. So that's going to be going on the whole time. Um, I love this footnote in this verse. In this verse. Um, it says, don't be squeezed into the mold of this present age. And that Greek word actually means the spaces of time or present time. And I'm going to get into this in a second because reality and time are like my jam. Thinking about it within the context of God. But listen, he's saying, don't be squeezed within these hundred years that you're on earth. Don't be squeezed within the culture of what's going on just while you're on the planet. Because you, your spirit existed before you came to the planet and your spirit will, will live on afterwards. So there's a reality outside the constraints of what you're currently living in, what culture is saying right now. Um, it also, um, in the Aramaic, it has the same idea, a deeper meaning. It actually means to surround. Paul's warning us not to be conformed to this world, surrounded by time. So that is where we can be time benders. When he says, hey, don't live, don't live according to culture, because your soul and your spirit are actually eternal beings. They, are, they don't like it. They don't like being so squished 
within what's going on in the world right now. When you think about 100 years compared to eternity, that is really, really tiny. And that's how small we're, con we're constraining ourselves when we are living within our souls. Yeah. Okay. Let me take a drink. You guys doing good? I just want to help us, you know, like what I was saying at the beginning. God wants to split your mind open. He wants to expand your imagination. It is really fun when he starts to blow your mind all the time. And so, what are we on? Yep, there we are. Okay. So, Jesus was our model, right? So, Jesus actually shows us what it's like to live motivated by the Spirit. So we're going to take a look at that. I'll let you know when you can park, but I'm just going to read a couple of, of verses. Uh, a couple of weeks back in prayer, he actually led me to this verse when Jesus gets baptized by the Holy Spirit, and it wrecked me. Um, so like Mark, Mark 1.10 says, The moment Jesus rose up out of the water, John saw the heavenly realm split open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Uh, the footnote there says the Lord Jesus was buried in baptism symbolically into death so that he might minister not in the natural way of men, but in the way of resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. The dove, an emblem of the Holy Spirit, pictures both meekness and purity. The implication, this is where it wrecked me. The implication whew, is that the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and never left him. And when I was in the green room today, I knew I'd cry. I always cry. Um, he was showing me that. it's it, This is so crazy because I already knew what I was going to talk about. But in worship, Shudi says that the Holy Spirit is like an engagement ring. And he never leaves. I got some. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, just like, I just like it to come down. <laughs> Gives me a little facial. <laughs> Um, he showed me that when we accept the Holy Spirit, that we put him on like an engagement ring, but that Jesus did it a long time ago. He chose us first. When he gets baptized, he puts on that ring and he says, I will never be separate from you. This is, this is how we're joined. We're joined by the Holy Spirit. The engage, this is the promise. The Holy Spirit is our engagement ring saying, I am committed to you. Jesus puts the ring on first. He's been wearing that ring for a long time. Okay, I uh, also want to do it in Matthew 3, 16. As Jesus rose up out of the water, the heavenly realm opened up over him, and he saw the Holy Spirit descend out of the heavens and rest upon him in the form of a dove. Um, and the footnote here, he says... The dove is a symbol for both meekness and purity. Two gentle animals are pictured at the baptism of Jesus, a dove resting upon the lamb. If you want to have the presence of the dove, you need to have the nature of the lamb. The implication, again, he says it. The implication is that the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and never left him. And so the way... We're talking about, again, soul battles versus spirit battles. The way to not separate from him 
is to not take off that ring, not to not take off, hey, Holy Spirit, I don't need you today. Let me, I'll actually take care of this. When we do that, we step, we step outside our covenant with him. We made a promise when we accepted Jesus. Marriage was supposed to help us help paint this picture in that when I put this on, it really means till death do us part. And since we don't die, that means forever. From now until eternity. So the way that we don't continue to live in the souls, we don't take that off. We don't take that ring off. We don't sideline the Holy Spirit. Um, okay, so th- we're going to get into Matthew 4. So you guys can go here. We are going to park here for a little bit. This is when, so Jesus gets baptized, right? And what happens immediately after? Yeah, he goes to the wilderness. Holy Spirit leads him to the wilderness. He puts on the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit says, hey, let's come away where nobody else is, and let's, let's battle. Let's go fight some stuff. This is really interesting to me because this is before Jesus does any miracles. He gets baptized. He goes into the wilderness. Then he does his ministry. He learns how to battle in the secret place when no one else was around before what he, what we're going to go through, what he experienced in battling the enemy with when no one else is around, equipped him for battling out in public, bat- facing, facing actual spiritual warfare. Okay, so let's say, let me get over to Matthew. We're starting at the top. Matthew 4. Afterward, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to experience the ordeal of testing by the accuser. And after fasting for 40 days, Jesus was extremely hungry. Okay, this this I hadn't noticed before. Maybe you had. Might be smarter than me. Jesus fasts for 40 days before he experiences the accusing of the enemy. Because we're going on to three. It says, then the tempter came to him. So Jesus lives without food and then experiences the enemy. He was already um, focusing in his soul. And I think the reason that he did this, and some of you guys are fasting right now, it's to help equip you to see, to bring to the surface where your soul is. And so Jesus actually models through fasting what it's like to be at the lowest point of your soul when your soul is so big. He was hungry, man. He, I know he was the son of God, but he was hungry. He experienced everything that we experienced. So imagine not eating for 40 days. You're going you're gonna to feel some type of way. I'm going to feel some type of way. If I don't have food, probably by 2.30, I'm going to feel. You're going to see my soul. <laughs> it's going to come out. Have you guys seen those videos where... <laughs> when somebody's hangry and then they eat and they're like a totally different person. I love that. That's how I am. That's how our souls are. So listen, he had the exact same opportunity. He did not have any superpowers. He actually, the Holy Spirit led him. The Holy Spirit led him to deprive his soul of what it thinks it needs. And then he experienced the accuser. So let's get into that. 
Then the tempter came to him and said, How can you possibly be the son of God and go hungry? Just command these stones to be turned into loaves of bread. So back up to when Jesus gets baptized, what happens? God comes down. He says, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So whose voice was first? God's. God says, You are definitely my son. I'm happy with you. He goes into the desert. Enemy says, are you actually the son? Because the circumstance is saying that you're not. Jesus, it says, he answered the scriptures say, bread alone will not satisfy, but true life is found in every word that constantly goes forth from God's mouth. So here's this next one. Way you can tell that you're battling in your soul is that the enemy's suggestions confirm the lie as your identity. Right here we see that Jesus experienced that and that Satan is trying to say, are you really? And when we take that lie into our soul, we actually believe it to be true. But when we're partnered with this spirit, it says that the enemy's suggestions confirm the truth of who God says you are. So if you can see it like the enemy knows who, you, who you're meant to be. And so all he can try to do is try to get you to not look at it. But it's all revolved around the truth of who you are. So he, he can't help but actually point to who you are. So when we get that, so think about the way that he lies to you. Because the way that he lies to everybody is very, very different. It, it's because it points to how God actually made you. And when we get that, we are battling in our spirit. So when he comes and lies, that is when we are participating in actual spiritual warfare. And we can actually use that as fuel to go forward in who he made us to be. So right here's this first, this first one. And, and that's what Jesus helps us see. Hey, don't go into your soul. Don't believe what the enemy says. It's not a confirmation of nothing except of who God says you already are. So let's go on to the next one. Oh no, let's go back. Let's stay. Let's stay here. Let's stay here. Yeah. So spiritual battles confirms the truth of who God says you are. So this is where I want to talk about reality. There's only one reality, and it's called truth. It's God's truth. It's not subjective. The demonic can only, the demonic lives in response to truth. So that tells me what's actually real. It tries to distort and create an illusion of another reality that simply does not exist. And so if you can, I love this stuff. If you can see that the only reality that you are living in is God's truth. And that the enemy, listen, he, he, fell a long, long time ago before any of us are here. He doesn't know any of the plans. I actually believe he does not live outside of time. He's constrained to time. And so he is seeing in real time what God is doing and responding to it right in that moment. He only knows what to do the moment he sees what God is doing. But I think sometimes he can see what God is doing more than we can. And that's where we've got to realize Um. But listen, okay, this is so amazing, right? Okay, so just believe with me today that he, he's, not, he's not able to go back in time. He can't go forward in time. He's stuck in our current present day reacting to how things are unfolding. 
We actually know that to be true because of the way that Jesus' resurrection rolled out. He did not. He thought he had won when Jesus was crucified. He was not preparing for Jesus to be raised from the dead. He did not know that plan until it actually happened. So because of this, um, this is where we can access. This is what it means to live post-victory because God lives outside of time. So again, current reality is his truth. God lives outside of time. He lives in eternity. In eternity, which is his truth, which is the reality. Eternity is reality. The war has already been won. And think about it. When we go into eternity, when we go into heaven, are, is, there, is there still a battle? So it's already been won. That's how we access. Listen, I need, I need more space. This is our life. For the example, this is our life. Here is eternity. We'll say this is the start of eternity. There really is no end, but we'll say the end. Um, this is where the victory is. Here's where we are. Our, remember, our souls and our spirit live outside. They go on. Our spirits can access right now the truth of what happens, what we have not yet experienced. Do you see how that goes? That is some amazingness. So when you're, talk <laughs> when you're talking about living post-victory, you can go get that victory right now. You are a time bender. Your spirit can connect with the Holy Spirit who is part of God, who is outside of time, who has already won the war. So we do, but that, that doesn't negate the reality that we are currently experiencing within the constraints of time what the battle looks like right now the spiritual battle. That is real. That is going on. But again, it's just a snippet of the whole thing. We have to access, we have to go in and access through our spirit that the truth of the ending victory and bring it to, to the constraints of our present day. Did you love that? I love it. I love it. I love it. If you want to talk about reality, let's talk about reality. And so then, I've talked about this before, but when we're talking about to live like we've never sinned, who decided that? God decided that sin wasn't the problem. So the moment you accept him, the moment you ask for forgiveness, he actually removes it from his mind. His mind is the only one that matters because he created everything. He removes it from reality. It is like it never happened. That is the challenge that we have to live in every day. I love this. Okay, right before... We get to the end of this. In the footnote, um, when Jesus is setting, saying about that about the bread, Jesus' response is actually, nothing can satisfy the Son's appetite but the words of God. Jesus shows us how to take the hunger of our soul. We have a legit hunger in our soul. It just doesn't know how to meet its hunger. Jesus, in this, in this example of the wilderness, shows us how to take the hunger of our soul and submit it to the Spirit through His Word in order to be satisfied. It's the only way it can be satisfied. True provision only happens through our good, good Father. Okay, we're going to do five. Matthew five. Four, five. Then the accuser transported Jesus to the holy city of Jerusalem and perched him at the highest point of the temple. 
and said to him, if you're really God's son, here we are again. If you're really God's son, jump and the angels will catch you. For it is written in the scriptures, he will command his angels to protect you and they will lift you up so that you won't even bruise your rock on a foot. He's trying to. So in that first part, um, Jesus actually uses the word to disprove the lie of the enemy. But the enemy catches on and he grabs some scripture himself. He takes it outside of context and he does this. Here's how you can tell you're battling your soul. Part of battling your soul um, actually invites the spirit of religion um, to when you read the word, you feel condemned. That's what's happening here. It's the very first instance where the enemy can, remember, he can only distort. He distorts what the word of God was actually saying, takes it out of context to make you feel bad about you. Um, Jesus, he's got the same, same response. Uh, once again, Jesus said to him, the scripture, this is what the scriptures actually say, enemy. You must never put the Lord your God to, a, to the test. So here's this next part about our soul battle. This next area from the accuser is through protection. So another indicator that you're in a soul battle is that you have to constantly maintain your own protection. That is not going to work. In spiritual warfare, we can actually go into dangerous situations knowing we are protected, and we can actually push back darkness. Okay, so here we are, Matthew 8, 4, 8. And the third time, the accuser, Jesus, notice here's the threes. We've been on the threes. There was only three. The third time, the accuser lifted Jesus up onto a very high mountain range and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all the splendor that goes with it. All of these kingdoms I will give to you, the accuser said, if only you will kneel down before me and worship me. But Jesus said, go away, Satan, for the scriptures say, kneel before your, the Lord your God and worship only him. So here's this last test. Lastly, the enemy suggests to Jesus that it's through worshiping another that he's going to be given power, status, and the desires of his heart. He actually, so a way we can tell we're in our soul is we try to get our desires met through idol worship which is just simply anything we elevate over God. And it's never enough. But in spiritual warfare, Papa God, all of our desires are met solely through Him, and it's more than enough. Um, in Psalm 23, you know, that's the, um, He makes me lie down, the restful one. But that's also the one where He says, in the presence of my enemies, you prepare a table. So I would suggest if you're struggling in your soul, go find the table. Because it starts with the suggestion of the enemy. So there's a table. Because there's a lie, there's a feast. In the Passion, it actually says, You become my delicious feast even when my enemies dare to fight. We're, we can sit down and eat. You anoint me with the fragrance of your Holy Spirit. You give me all I can drink of until my cup overflows. And so these are um, just some last little bits about the way we can tell if we're in our soul. There's no stamina. We can't, we can't keep it up. Lack of follow-through, lack of passion. It's exhausting. It really is. It's so exhausting. But when we step into a spiritual battle, there is empowerment through the Holy Spirit. 
only through the Holy Spirit. There's actually, it actually fuels our passion. When you step into real spiritual warfare, you get excited. You get stoked. It lights a fire in you. You don't have to be bad already. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with you stepping into who you were made to be. So we're nearing the end here. You guys still good? The only way, there's only one way to win a soul battle. Now let's go to that next slide. It's by that person right there. It's by getting subdued by the Spirit. That's the only way you're going to win a soul battle. There is no empowerment to win outside of our soul, or our Spirit dominating our soul. And it won't force itself. The Holy Spirit is such a gentleman, He will never force Himself on us. We have to, we have to tell our souls that we want our spirits to be in the lead, to, to allow Him to come and infiltrate. Um, this is uh, back to Romans 8, 12. So then, beloved ones, the flesh has no claims on us at all, and we have no far, further obligation to live in obedience to it. We're not obligated. The moment we accept Jesus, we are no longer obligated to do what our soul is telling us to do. There is no requirements. And the reason there's no requirements is because there's no reward in doing what our soul is trying to tell us to do. It's not rewardable. When you live controlled by the flesh, you are about to die. Obviously not literally die. But we experience a death, right? We experience the pains of being separated from Him and feeling isolated. It is a death. It is like, ugh, we're not living life. We're not choosing life in that moment when we're controlled by our flesh. But if the life of the Spirit puts to death the corrupt ways of the flesh, which it does, but when we, when we attach to it, we then taste His abundant life. So we have an option, right? Our soul, the soul is the seed of choices. When our soul is attached to a lie, we will continue to battle from a soulish place. So that very first moment that the enemy suggests something to us, that is a moment, that is the moment of choice. Our souls get to either attach to a lie or attach to truth. If our souls were attached to truth, it aligns with our spirit who's, who already wants to do good. And this is what it looks like. God desires for us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Notice those are two different things. God wants us to worship him in spirit which is our spirit, but he also wants us, us also wants us to worship in truth. The way we worship in truth is when we align our souls to what's true. We get the, the our souls is where we get the choice to latch on to the truth, and that's what changes our minds. God desires that we would end the battle in our souls so that we can participate in the real battle, which is the spiritual one. He made us to thrive in the real war we are in. You can live victoriously with the Spirit. Let's put up that last slide. So to end, you know I had to do a hammer. If you're not from here, one of my nicknames is Thor. <laughs> yeah, listen to this. This is crazy. This is, again, in Romans 8. Romans 8, 37. Yet in the midst of all these things, we triumph over them all. For God has made us to be more than conquerors. And his demonstrated love for, and his demonstrated love is our glorious victory, victory over everything. I kind of liked how I said that. Victory. 
His demonstrated love is our glorious victory over everything. So again, we're living post-victory, right? The reason we can live in the current reality of victory is because of His love. His love is now. His love was then. His love is going to keep going. That's how we step outside of time because His love is not changing. It's not. It's eternal. So get this. Okay, here we go. We've got two footnotes here. This is as we wrap up. So it says, Love has made us more than conquerors in four ways. No situation in life can defeat us or dilute God's love. We know that divine love and power work for us to triumph over all things. We share in the victory spoils of every enemy we face. So listen, when in your current day, when you're experiencing the enemy, that is the moment to align with your spirit. There's reward when you align with your spirit. That is those victory spoils. That's rewardable. And then four, we have conquered the conqueror. Who's the conqueror? It's God. We've conquered him. That tells me we have already won because we've conquered the guy who's conquered everything. How have we conquered him? With merely a glance of our worshiping eyes. We have won his heart. The second footnote says that the love of God gives us a glorious hyper victory. It's not just a victory. This is like so extreme. I love God. It's a hyper victory, more than can be described or contained in one word. God's love and grace has made us hyper conquerors. I'm not the only Thor in the room. God has made us hyper conquerors, empowered to be unrivaled, more than a match for any foe. So to wrap up today, I want you to know Jesus is the lover of your soul. He is the only one who can help you stop the battle in your soul. There is so much he is wanting to have us attain in territory that we can actually gain when we fight the right battle. And so I'm going to pray over us. Papa, I just thank you for your truth. Your truth is the only reality. And so we attach to your truth today that it is only by your spirit that we can do a single thing. It's your spirit right now that is putting the breath in our lungs. We are not making that happen. It is your spirit. And so I just bless every heart in this room to receive your truth. And I break them free out of old cycles, out of old ways of battling in your soul that are not we were never meant to battle that way. And I thank you that you are upgrading people to battle well, to battle in your spirit, that there is going to be such a fire that comes, such a passion that comes when we fight your way. So I just bless everyone to hear hear what you're saying today. I bless this seed that it would plant deep in people's hearts. I just thank you even for the moments that went over people's heads, that that is what your goodness does. It always goes over our heads because there is more to be obtained by you. You are wanting to blow our living minds every day of our life. <laughs> and so I just thank you for that. I thank you that we don't have to live so restrained by by the natural, by our souls, that you are wanting to break us free. And it's when you come and love our souls and we can put our spirits in the lead. So I just bless us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from One Life OK. For more information, please visit us at onelifeok.com.